Well, good morning again. Good to see you here today. Thank you, Brother Josh. Beautiful job. If you would, take your Bibles. Turn with me this morning to Luke chapter number 7. Luke chapter number 7, and we're going to begin reading in a few moments in verse number 11. Shortly after Jesus healed the centurion's servant in verse 10, we find Jesus traveling toward the city of Nain, accompanied by a large crowd. Now, the, na- the word Nain means pleasant or delightful. And on this particular day, it is undoubtedly a very pleasant place. But its beauty was overshadowed by something dark and gloomy and fearful. It was death. As Jesus led his disciples and all those who were following him into the city of Nain, they met a very different crowd leaving the city. The city with the crowd with Jesus was undoubtedly joyful and upbeat and jubilant, expectant. But the crowd heading out of town in the opposite direction had a very different frame of mind. The perspective of the other crowd was gloomy and dark. They were mourning the death of a widow's only son. There was no joy, no hope, no expectancy. Jesus was headed for the city while the mourners were headed for the cemetery. But in his wisdom, Jesus orchestrated a meeting at the gate. I want you to see with me, first of all, this morning, sometimes life just seems to cave in on us. And we'll begin reading in verse number 11. Now it happened that the day after that he went into a city called Nain. And many of his disciples went with him in a large crowd. And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out. The only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the city was with her. When we read the opening words of verse 11, which says... Now it happened. We think of it in the same vein as our current statement, it just so happened, implying that luck was involved. This is like saying, luckily, Jesus showed up. But things don't just happen by chance. There was a divine purpose at work here. Since it was 20 miles from Capernaum to Nain, it would have taken a full day to walk that distance. Since according to the law of Moses, Jews were to bury their dead on the same day they died, it is highly probable that this man had not yet died when Jesus began his journey. It was the purposeful plan of God that he encounter this funeral procession. At the entrance of the city, they met the funeral procession, taking the man to his burial place. The rich were buried in tombs, but the poor were buried in graves. What is important is that death has already exercised its power over this young man. We are not told how he died or what caused his death. It could have been an accident. It could have been disease. But the sad truth is that people of all ages die every day. 
This is the place in which our hopes also die. When our loved one stops breathing and their heart stops pumping, we say, that's it. It's finished. Luke includes the detail that the deceased is the only son of a widow. The core idea of the Greek word for widow was forsaken or one who is left alone. Widows are viewed in the Bible as the most vulnerable members of society. The bereaved mother would have been in the front of the procession wearing torn clothes. Next would come the men carrying the body, followed by the mourners. All funeral processions in that day would have expected to have been carried out by those wailing loudly and throwing dust into the air, as well as flute players who played sad music in the, on their instrument, and at least one person banging on a cymbal. All this noise was to move the crowd to wail and cry, and those who heard it would come out to join the procession. Not only was this poor widow mourning the death of her only son, but a widow in those days was in a totally vulnerable position. If they had no male relatives to provide for them and protect them, this particular woman had already lost her husband, and now she has lost her only son. As far as we know, this widow knows nothing of Jesus. Her world is limited to a very darkened circle of grief. She doesn't approach Jesus with an eloquent plea. She is too grief-stricken even to pray. Jesus has just come from healing the centurion's servant, but the situation here is far different. In one scene, there is a confident, clear-thinking soldier. In the other, a vulnerable widow drowning in her own turbulent emotions. In one, there is unquestioning faith. He says, just say the word and my servant will be healed. In the other, there is grief as if there will be no tomorrow. In one, there is eloquence and protocol. In the other, unbridled pain and enough tears to dissolve the strongest prayers. These differences illustrate that our Savior does not demand that we fit into a certain pattern to receive his help. He doesn't withhold his compassion because we fail to live up to a certain number of good deeds or because we didn't say the right words or because we forgot to follow the correct ritual. Although sometimes life is just seems to cave in on us. Secondly, we serve a Lord who is moved by our needs. Verse 13 says, And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and he said to her, Do not weep. For the first time, Luke refers to Jesus as Lord. And it is particularly fitting that he does so now as Jesus displays his power even extends over death. First of all, I want you to see that Jesus knows. He saw her. 
According to tradition, the family of the deceased would walk at the very front of the procession. So Jesus would have met the mother first. And when Jesus saw her, he not only saw her, he saw her circumstances and he knew the future that she faced. He saw not only her grief, but he also understood the social stigma that she would have to bear as well. Because you see, according to the Jewish mind, losing an, un, an only son was an especially painful event since it was also regarded in many cases as divine punishment for sin. How many times have you heard of someone who was suffering in grief, who is told by a well-meaning but unwise person, God must be trying to tell you something? How many times have people come to offer their sympathies, saying to those who are grieving, God must have a plan for this, so you just have to accept it. Or another say, it was God's will, and you have to live by it. Or still another, someone, somehow God planned this to test your faith. Sometimes people say the cruelest and most heartless things, trying to explain the unexplainable. Sometimes in our stumbling efforts to comfort others, we only cause them greater pain. Often the most effective ministry that we can have for those who are grieving occurs in small acts of service rather than in grand attempts to explain why a tragedy has occurred. Perhaps the most useful thing we we can do is to lend a listening ear and a compassionate shoulder. Jesus not only knows, Jesus cares. It says that he had compassion on her. The word that is translated compassion is a word that is related to the bowels. And it literally describes an emotion that has a physical effect. Whereas today we talk about the heart as being the center of emotions The ancient world used the bowel to describe deep feelings. And it really is quite accurate if you think about it. You know that when you feel deep emotion, it churns your stomach. It makes your heart beat rapidly. If the emotion is strong enough, it makes you feel like you've been punched in the stomach. That is how the Jews described extreme emotion. Jesus felt deeply for this woman. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 4, 15, for we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus was, and he continues to be, moved by the hurts and sorrows of his people. He did when he walked on the earth, and he does it now as our sympathetic high priest seated at the right hand of the Father. It would be sad to know that God existed, but that he didn't know our needs. But he does know. It would be deplorable if God knew our needs, but he did not care about our circumstances. But God does care. It would be tragic if God knew our needs, but he was unable to do anything about them. But God is able But because God knows and God is able and God cares, we can be assured that God 
will answer. Not only does he know and he care, it says he told her that her tears were unnecessary. As Jesus looked upon this woman, he saw that all her hope was gone. A woman who not only was having to stand alone with death, but was also being judged by her own society and people. Jesus told her not to weep because he was about to turn her tears into a testimony. I want you to notice that all the initiative in this conversation was taken by the Lord. And then, not in response to faith, but only in response to grief and human need, Jesus said, don't weep. Well, that's easy to say if it's not happening in your life, if it's not your son, if it's not your situation. Sometimes we tell others not to cry, essentially because it makes us uncomfortable. Sometimes Christians are taught that it is unspiritual to grieve or shed tears, but Jesus does not forbid a Christian to weep. In an often misquoted scripture, the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Thessalonians says, but I do not want you to sorrow as others who have no hope. Unfortunately, that verse has been taken and misconstrued to teach that true believers are not to grieve. This not only makes a painful situation even more painful, if not intolerable. Paul does not say that the Christian is not to grieve. The process, the ability to grieve is natural. It is even emotionally necessary in life. Grief is a natural, normal, perfectly appropriate response to loss. What Paul prohibits is not grief, but hopeless grief. But in our text, Jesus does not tell this widow not to weep because it was wrong to express such an emotion, but because in this situation, it would prove unnecessary. We not only serve a Savior who is moved by our needs, but third, our Savior is able to conquer even death. Jesus then touched the coffin, bringing to a halt the funeral procession. Verse 14 says, then he came and he touched the open coffin, and those who stood, who carried him stood still. Now, interrupting a funeral procession is the height of bad manners. And although the word coffin is used here, it was in all probability a bier. In those days, they carried the dead on a stretcher or a board, and the body was wrapped in claws. Jesus performed his miracles in a variety of ways. But he always raised the dead in the same way, by calling them back to life. It was the power of his word that brought life to the dead. With absolutely no ceremony, Jesus simply instructed the boy, the young man, to rise up. He says in verse 14, and he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And so he who was dead sat up and began to speak, and he presented him to his mother. Jesus merely spoke to the dead man saying, young man, arise. 
It was the words that a parent would speak to a child when it was time to wake up in the morning. My dad would come and say, get up, son. Of course, in my case, the next thing that happened was he jerked all the covers off, but that's another story. Luke tells us that Jesus spoke, and the young man sat up and spoke. Most of us might have said, hey, what's going on here? Now, this is how you end a funeral. The gospel informs us that Jesus broke up every funeral he ever attended. Technically speaking, this is not a resurrection, but a resuscitation. This young man rose from the dead only to die again. But God promises that we will be resurrected and rise from the dead never to die again. True resurrection is to eternal life. And Jesus was its first fruits. There are three recorded miracles in which Jesus raised a dead person back to life. Jairus' daughter, Lazarus, and this widow's only son. But in each case, the individual would again die a physical death. Jesus presented this young man back to his mother. And although Jesus may not raise your loved one back to life in this world... The promise that he made to Lazarus' sisters is still true. John chapter 11, verse 25, he says, And he who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. In the story in our text, without even the presence of faith, Jesus gave this woman back her son. Perhaps he did this deliberately to teach us that someday... Even though we are not present on earth to exercise faith, he will make the grave yield its victims. Our bodies will be raised again and claimed as we return from the skies in the company with our wonderful Lord. The Apostle Paul described it this way in his letter to the church at Thessalonica. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in the air to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord and therefore comfort one another with these words. Fourth thing I want you to see this morning is that he overcomes death. He who overcomes death deserves our worship. Verse 16 and 17. Then fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen up among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him went out through all Judea and all the surrounding region. The verse says, That as a result of this miracle, two things happened to the crowd. First, it says, a great fear came upon them all and they glorified God. Why are they afraid? Well, because they knew they were in the presence of God. They knew this was the power of God. There was no other explanation. 
And so they were afraid because God was there and they knew that God was holy and that they were not. And that is always the sinner's dilemma. An exposure to death as a way of changing the way we look at things. The story is told that General William Nelson, a Union general in the Civil War, was consumed with the battles in Kentucky when a fight broke out, which ended in him being shot mortally in the chest. He had faced many battles, but the fatal blow came while he was relaxing with his men. As such, he was caught completely unprepared. As the men ran up the stairs to help him, the general said just one phrase, send for a clergyman. He had never had time as an adolescent or a young man. He never had time as a private or even after he became a general. And his wound did not stop him or slow down the war. Everything around him was left virtually unchanged except for the general's priorities. With only minutes left before he entered eternity, the one thing that he cared about was preparing for eternity. Thirty minutes later, he was dead. May I suggest to you that a brush with death will cause us to re-examine our priorities. Perhaps in the past, the death of someone you love caused you at least momentarily to examine what you thought was important in life. It may be that you were able to shake that off as only a temporary gloomy thought. But the truth is, at the end of your life, there is only one thing will matter, and that's whether or not you've settled where you're going to spend eternity. And then all the excuses that you've offered throughout your lifetime will be exposed for what they are, excuses. While the people's estimation of Jesus was that he was a great prophet, according to verse 16, even as many do today, that's an incomplete confession. Why did they come to that conclusion? Well, they knew of two Old Testament prophets, Elijah and Elisha. Both of these prophets were believed to be among the greatest of the prophets, and both of them had raised people from the dead. And although their estimation of Jesus was not as high as it should have been, it did cause people to come to the conclusion that God has come to help his people. The translation called the message translates this verse this way. They were quietly worshipful and then noisily grateful, calling out among themselves, God is back looking to the needs of his people. While this miracle may remind us of our own mortality, it also shouts to us of God's power over death and the grave. Death is not the end for those who know the Lord. Death is merely the transfer to eternity. No wonder the crowd was filled with awe. We should be too as we contemplate his creative power 
and his compassionate love. When Jesus, the Lord of life, met the enemy, death, in the village of Nain, life prevailed and death was conquered. But it was only the opening skirmish. The story does not end with this one skirmish with death recorded in Luke chapter 7. Jesus went on to defeat death for all time. The real battle took place at the garden tomb. When the battle took Jesus there, it lay him in a tomb. But three days later, Jesus arose. Jesus defeated death for all those who placed their faith in him. Today, on Easter Sunday, we celebrate his victory over death. Because death could not keep Jesus in the grave, we have the confidence that the Apostle Paul expressed in 1 Corinthians 15. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I think this illustration makes my point. A Muslim in Africa became a Christian, and some of his friends asked him why. He answered, well, it's like this. Suppose you were going down a road, and suddenly the road forked in two directions, and you didn't know which way to go. If you met two men at the fork, one was dead and one was alive, which one would you ask to show you the way? On another occasion, Jesus was called to minister to two sisters named Mary and Martha upon the death of their brother Lazarus. And what Jesus said to them is recorded in John chapter 11. And I'd invite you to turn there for just a moment as we conclude the message. John chapter 11, verse number 25. Here we find Jesus saying, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me, he will never die. Following this statement, Jesus asked the single most important question in life. He said to Martha in verse 26, do you believe this? In other words, Martha, do you believe that I am the resurrection and life? Do you believe that those who place their faith in me will never die? And in answer to Jesus' question, she said in verse 27, Yes, Lord, I believe. The single most important question that you will ever answer in life is, Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Do you believe that those who put their faith and trust in him will never die? If so, what have you done about it? Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that we have the privilege to be here this morning and celebrate Jesus' victory over death. To realize that 
by the purchase he made on Calvary, we can have eternal life. That he who knew no sin went to the cross in order to bear my sin, to be my substitute and the substitute of all those who would claim that gift through faith. It may be, Lord, here on this Resurrection Sunday that there is someone present who has never placed their faith and trust in you. That if this were the last day of their lives, they would not be prepared for eternity. Help them to know, Lord, that right here, right now, that they can turn to you and in repentance say, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I know I can't save myself. And ask you to forgive them of their sins. Would you help them, Lord, in that way? And for those of us who have been saved, we know that Jesus is our Savior. Then make this real in our lives. Help us to live as testimonies for you in a dark and dying world. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.